Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Now, let's just grab our Bibles. If we have our Bibles, I would encourage you to grab them and turn to the letter of James. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this on your phone, I'm sure. Returning to James chapter 1, starting in verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12. We are continuing our journey through the letter of James. Now, I just said letter of James. To be more accurate, it'd probably be better to say James's sermon letter. You've heard me say this week in and week out because we need to remember that James was a pastor. And James was basically pastoring refugees. Imagine just for a moment if we were all sort of forced to move out of Columbus because of our faith in Jesus. Well, I would want to stay connected to you somehow. I would want to encourage you toward Jesus somehow. And I could think of a lot of worse ideas than sort of composing a sermon and getting it to you somehow, some way. And that's the pastoral heartbeat of James in this sermon letter. And if we pay attention to verse 1, talking of the 12 tribes in the dispersion, or the diaspora, or the sort of scattering out. And if we pay attention to what we know about first century history, especially in Jerusalem, then that is exactly what James is doing. He's sending the early church a sermon. And in this sermon, James probably has three main points. Trials, wisdom, and wealth. And he briefly introduced these themes in verses 2 through 11. And we've walked through each of these introductions in the past three Sundays. And now what's he going to do? He's going to actually revisit each of these three themes again and give us a little more depth this time. And then what's he going to do after that? He's going to revisit those three themes and get even more in depth with each of them. What do they say in preaching class? Say it, say it again, and then say it again. And that's how James is approaching these themes. So, we're starting with trials. Again, we're meeting them again. We saw them in verses 2 through 4. If you take a look down, you'll notice that. And we're asking the question now, as we asked then, how does Jesus change the way that we handle or hold hardship? I'll read and you can follow along. We'll start in verse 12 through verse 18. This is God's word. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation 
or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so, Lord, would my words and would our meditation be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer? And, Lord, as we open your word of truth and open our lives to your word of truth, would we see the word of truth, Jesus, and be encouraged? So, Lord, would you receive our mustard seed faith? So many of us here don't have much to show by way of faith, but you accept. You call us ye of little faith. It is faith in you. We believe. Help our unbelief. And it's in your name that we pray this. Amen. Well, recently, some friends of mine were having a garage sale. And around that same time, Josie, my wife, and I were doing a deep clean of our basement. Perfect timing. We had a lot of things we wanted to get rid of. The only problem was that some of these things were very heavy, like our bulky desk that was sitting in our basement unused. And so we had to somehow get this bulky desk out of our basement into this garage sale, which was in the other part of town. Somehow we did it, as we always seem to. We picked up the bulky desk and sort of baby step by baby step, walked it up the shotgun stairs, across the yard, all those awkward angles into the minivan. Praise God for the minivan. And then maybe you can relate. But there's always this moment when carrying heavy furniture. Who's moved recently? There's always a moment when you're carrying heavy furniture when you feel like you're going to drop it. And you're usually having help with somebody else, but you kind of bite your tongue. You're like, I'm going to hang on to this thing. And somehow you do until you get to the top of the stairs, until you get through the house, until you get to the truck. That feeling, that, okay, that feeling, hang on to that feeling for a minute, that feeling of being under something heavy, that is what James is getting at when he uses, in verse 12, the word steadfast. The Greek word is actually really helpful here. And I'm going to geek out on the Greek word with you all because I think it will be helpful. So imagine this word as a Lego chunk of two pieces. My youngest is in full-on Lego world, so that's where my mind is today. The first piece is the Greek prefix, hypo. Okay, hang on to that piece. The second piece is the Greek word, Mono. Hypo like means under, like hypothermia means you're under temperature. Not a good thing. Under. The second piece, mone, means to stay put or to remain or to stand. And so this word hypomone means what? To remain under, to stand under, to stay put under. Or in our English translation, steadfast. Remain Steadfast. Some translations, older translations, use the word patient. But what I want you to understand from this brief word study is that what James is saying to the ancient church and to us this morning 
It's not, it's, it's less sitting in a room waiting to have your name called by the doctor and more moving a heavy desk. James is saying, blessed is the one who doesn't let go of the desk. I spent some time on that little word because I think it's incredibly helpful for us. It's a helpful word to help us even name the last 20 months or so of our lives. It's been said to name it is to tame it. When we accurately name hard things, that little act, that courageous act of naming a hard thing, actually helps our hearts entrust that hard thing to the Lord. And relax into the Lord. It doesn't fix that hard thing. And so we name it. And the last 20 months have been a season in our life that requires some naming. We've had to hold some heavy things. Or as James would put it, we've been asked to remain steadfast under trial. I mean, what have you been carrying up the shotgun stairs recently? I speak figuratively. I'm guessing it probably feels like your fingers are going to break off right about now, or they already are, already have. It feels like your shoulder's going to pop out. What are those things? You didn't choose to carry these things, but you're carrying them. Pew Research surveyed nearly 10,000 U.S. adults, asking them to reflect in their own words on the past year. That's a dangerous ask. There was some silver lining thinking in these responses, but for the most part, the negatives far outpaced the silver lining. They said this year had a negative impact on the following things, their personal relationships, how they spend their time, their physical health, their mental health. The physical and mental health of those they know and love. Society and politics. Their job. The jobs of those they know. Their personal financial situation. These are all heavy, heavy loads. And I know that we've all been asked to stand under these loads in different ways. We certainly didn't invite them. And here's the worst part. Again, naming is taming. The worst part is the garage sale is a long way away. And we're on step one. We don't know when or if any of this will end up. These are what James would call, in verses 2 through 4, and in verse 12, trials. Hard things. Hardship. And as I've shared before, and I'll share again right now, James's church were experiencing them as well. It isn't too difficult, actually, to pick up on what their trials were. They were experiencing, as I said, religious persecution because of their love of Jesus. They were following Jesus and that put them in a hard spot. They were also suffering economic injustice. So chapter 5 as a preview tells us that they were not getting paid by the wealthy landowners for the work that they were doing. 
There was also a famine, we know, in those days, as the book of Acts tells us, which in an agrarian culture would be very similar, would have a similar impact to them as a global pandemic would to us. And then at the end of the letter, we're told in a very famous passage to anoint the sick with oil and to pray, which tells us that there was profound sickness going on in this Jesus community as well. And that's just what we glean from James and from this letter. I'm sure the list goes on. If you think of all the little sub-trials that come underneath those big things that I just shared. So is there any surprise that some within this Jesus community started to accuse God? Is that a surprise? We see this actually in verse 13. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself tempts no one. It's important in verse 13 to notice something. Let no one say when he is tempted. That word tempted is the same word that James uses for trials. So let no one say when he is tested, trial, put under hardship. That it's God. What does this mean? I think James is putting to words something that we all experience. And it's this. When external hardships come our way, trials, they can easily and quite often easily morph into internal trials or temptations. That was happening to them, and I'm betting you can relate. Uh, the past year has revealed temptations and sin patterns that you might not have noticed before or that you thought you had licked and under control. Experts have been talking about the two epidemics, COVID-19 and addiction. New York Times has a headline titled Relapsing Left and Right. All of this is embedded in this ancient verse. When external trials come, they have a way of exposing inner trials, what our translation calls temptations. For James' community, they were having a hard time and then accusing God for ruining their life and causing them to sin. They weren't doubting God's existence. That was kind of impossible back then. They were doubting God's what? Maybe that's you this morning. We believe in God. We're just not sure He's good. We're stuck with malevolent God. Maybe that's how you feel. It feels like God wants me to fail. He wants me to relapse. He wants me to burn out. He wants me to walk away. If that's you, James has a word. Hypo Mine. Keep standing. Be steadfast. There's blessing. There's blessing here. There's blessing on step one and a half of the shotgun stairs. Stay put. See, James is urging us to keep carrying it. 
And he does this actually by showing us two ways to hold it. One leads to death, and one leads to life. What are they? Well, they're what I'm going to call reactivity and receptivity. So reactivity against God, and then receptivity to God. I think it's a helpful way to frame what James is going to unpack for us this morning. And so let's look at each in turn. First with reactivity against God. And this is the first way, and often the knee-jerk way, that we react to hardship. We, we react... We react. It's a reactive response, and we hold it that way. When hardship comes, we're like a lizard who scurries away when it comes near, or a bird who flies away when you make a little move. It just flies away. And we do this. We react against God in two ways, James shows us. We blame God, and then we become blind to ourselves. Blaming God. So James wants to warn us against reacting to hardship by blaming God. So again, if you look at verse 13... Where it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Again, James is using the same word to describe external trials as he does here with temptation or internal trials. And we know the difference in scripture because sometimes we translate it temptation, sometimes we translate it trial. We know the difference by context. And so James is shifting from the external trial to the internal temptation that often happens within these external trials. In fact, it might help to read the verse this way. So we look again at verse 13 and we read it this way. Let no one say in hardship, I am being tempted by God. James is making two very important points with that simple sentence. Number one, external hardships have a way of triggering internal temptations. You can take that to the back. And number two, God is never the source of these inner temptations. We sometimes think kind of God and evil are like Ohio State and Michigan. I said it in that order on purpose. Um, an ancient rivalry, sort of opposing forces, duking it out. Sometimes Michigan wins, but most of the time they don't. And that's how we view God and evil. But that's not true. That's not biblical. Evil and sin are what the church father Augustine calls a privation of good. What's that mean? Evil and sin is a vandalism of good. Evil cannot exist except as a parasite or a perversion or a twisting of God's good things. Satan and demons are themselves creations of God. Not this eternal sort of evil force like Star Wars. They're under God and always will be. And this means we don't blame God when we're tempted to sin. And we don't blame God when we sin. But that's how we so often react, isn't it? We blame God, or more often, we take it a step back and we blame our circumstances. Pastor Sam Alberry, he talks about the time he failed an exam at school. Quote, the exam was the occasion for my failure. It was not the cause of it. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> who's, who's, who's taking exams all of a sudden? And you're feeling this. The same is true, he goes on, when it comes to temptation and sin. My circumstances may be the occasion of my sin, but they are not the cause of it. 
So what is the cause of our sin then? And that brings us to the second way we react wrongly to hardship. We blame shift, which means we become blind to our own hearts. And this is so true in the midst of hardship, isn't it? We sort of look anywhere but here. Look again at 14 and 15. James says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, we've learned already, and we're going to find out even more, that James loves comparing spirituality to nature. Kind of like this half-brother Jesus. Just loves doing it. And so here he's inviting us to compare our inner struggle with birth. So first there are our desires, which by themselves are not a bad thing. God only makes good things. Desiring Jesus, for instance, is a good good thing. Praise God, he gave us desires. But because of our sinful nature, our desires are often misdirected. And so James tells us that our bent desires can be like a fishing lure or a hunting trap. They catch our eye, they tempt us to bite. Next, there is sin. So when a bent desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then next, if this sin is allowed to grow and grow and grow and mature, it brings forth, James says, death. Now, it is tempting, see that? Anybody see that? It is tempting to unpack this section as sort of a detailed, technical analysis and manual of how sin works. But I agree with this commentator who says this, and I'll just quote The focus of James is not a technical analysis of the process of sin, but a rhetorical laying of blame on the individual for succumbing in various ways to desire. So James is using this birthing metaphor, I think, to land the truth that that sin is our problem. It's our problem. Because as Jesus said, it flows from the depths of our hearts. Which means for us, we need to pay more attention, not less, to the desires of our hearts during hard times. Jack Miller, the late pastor, talks about oil slicks on the surface of the ocean. As Christians, we don't just clean up the surface oil when we see sin in our life. We go to the ocean depths and find the source. What is motivating the sin? Is there a false god or a false trust? Or a false love that I am pledging my allegiance to in this moment. And if all we do is scoop the surface level oil, then we leave the sort of sort of flowing source alone. And we can live our whole lives just scooping. But we never get down to the depths. So during hardship, James wants us to hold it receptively, not reactively. Open, open to what God is doing. Not reactively, where we blame God, or we blame our circumstances. During hardship, I would encourage you actually to allow this passage to help you become more self-aware of your inner desires and how they can be birthing sin. We can do what Jack Miller suggests, which is follow sin to the root. We could also simply pray the Lord's Prayer. 
Lead us not into temptation. Which is a prayer that admits three things. Number one, we will be tempted. It's not an if. You know, we're praying this for our daily bread. It follows that Jesus expected temptation to be a daily struggle as well. And then when the temptation lures us, we don't have, the. this prayer assumes we don't have the inner strength and resolve to sort of choose Jesus instead. We're praying, for goodness sake. What is prayer except this? You're on your knees and you're saying, Uncle, I can't do it myself. There is a helplessness in the Lord's Prayer that teaches us something about temptation as well. And it's simply this. Jesus has to give us the desire to the desire of Jesus more than the sin. I love... Anglican priest Justin Holcomb, he likes to describe victory over temptation this way. My desire for Jesus is right now just fractionally outpacing my desire for the sin. I think that's a, a real insight into how the human heart struggles. And who makes that true? King Jesus makes that true. I think Lord's Prayer assumes one other thing. Our sins don't damn us in Christ. We're praying the Lord's Prayer in Jesus' name. And we're asking our Father in Heaven to forgive us our sins as we've forgiven others. We hold hardship in non-reactive so what does that mean? It means that we have an opportunity to hold hardship receptively. Receptively. So reactivity against God, blaming God, and sort of self-blindness to ourself leads to spiritual death. There is another way that leads to life, which I wanted to hang out in here for a minute. So let me ask this question. What if, instead of holding hardship reactively against God, we held them receptively with God? What if we believe, James, that our hardest trials, both external and internal, could bear surprising fruit in our lives? What if our hardships and temptations became a, a sort of surprising springboard to joy, hope, and faith instead of a dead end? Isn't that how we view hardship, right? As a dead end, a waste, a total waste. What if instead we viewed them as a springboard, again, to joy, hope, and faith? James would say yes to all three. Surprising joy, first joy. Again, I want us to take a look again at verses 2 through 4. James says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let it have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So back to the heavy couch for a minute. Blessed. Blessed does not mean you feel joy. You feel happy holding this couch. It does, blessed here in verse 12 of, of, our, of, our, of our passage this morning. Doesn't mean that you sort of enjoy holding it. 
What it does mean, though, is that God gives you the supernatural capacity to look beyond it. To what it produces. I call this holy curiosity. We ask, I wonder how God is going to use this. To mature my faith. To melt the dross from my faith. To reveal more gold in my life. Christians have a bigger story. That's all this is. And that's what James means when he says, Consider your hardship as joy. Our souls are in a receptive posture when we consider or we value our sufferings differently. Surprising joy. Surprising hope. Look again at verse 12. The word blessed is the, is the one who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So hope is essentially living in light of God's sure promise. It's not wishful thinking. It's living in light of a surety. The surety is in the future, though. We don't look back at it, we look ahead to it. That's what hope is. We use hope as wishful thinking. I hope this happens, but I don't know. Hope in, in Scripture is, is, is a, a sort of looking forward to a surety. Because God has said it's going to happen. And He's given us signposts and pictures of that, of that future. And here we have one again. James points us to one. The crown of life, which is promised to those who love Him. And so again, the word blessed, it doesn't mean I feel happy, I feel great about this hardship. But listen to how the word is used in the Psalms. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but what? But their delight is in the law of the Lord. And they meditate on His law day and night. And so Psalm 2, verse 12 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord. And Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So who is blessed in the biblical story? Those who know their need, those who know they're forgiven, and who long for nearness with God, and who have it. That's what blessed means. When Jesus calls you his friend, you are blessed. That's, you know, that's hashtag blessed. Jesus says, you're my friend. Because that's a blessed that a religious refugee in James' day could claim. When you realize you have friendship with God by grace, you realize you have everything. Which is what the crown of life refers to. This crown is probably not a royal crown, but an Olympic crown. It's a crown that you were given, like a laurel wreath, after winning a race. And James is saying that at the end of your story, you have that crown of life. Which means you have Jesus. Jesus is the prize. The weight of this future glory far outweighs and surpasses the current hardship. 
And so when we stand under hardship, when we're holding the heavy couch, we remain curious. We use our redemptive imaginations to consider that future day, that way to glory. And that's surprising hope. It can, it can stir in the most painful moments. And in the deepest temptations. And then surprising faith. Look at verse 16. I love this passage. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Our hardships, in other words, could be opportunities for surprising faith. The word that James uses here for deceived means wandering. Do not wander. James is saying, don't wander, brothers and sisters. Don't wander away from, from what? From the true God. That he then describes. He believed, because he was a wise pastor, that hardship could be a moment of wandering. So he says, do not wander away. And instead, walk again afresh into the heart of God. He reminds us who God is. God is gratuitous. Every good, and, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. This is a reference to creation, the Father of lights, the Father who created and spoke light into existence. See what James is doing here? James is answering the question on all of our minds. If God doesn't send temptation, if God doesn't send evil, what does He send? And James is saying, I'll tell you, he sends good things. He's gratuitous in giving good things. He's also unchanging. With God, there's no variation or shadow due to change. So he's talking about the lights in the sky. He's going to say this. Unlike those lights in the sky that he created, God doesn't change or shift. We look at the stars and they move. We see shadows because the sun is moving. God does not change. God is unlike this. God is very much not like this. He is unchanging. God says himself in Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. I don't. And they were experiencing profound upheaval, and you are as well. He does not change. And then he's gracious. We talked a bit about our desire, our desire, and how they can be bent oftentimes. Let's talk about God's desire for a minute, because James does. Of his own will, he brought us forth. That's what the scriptures say. Of his own will. That word will could very well be translated of his own desire. He brought forth. This is a different kind of birth. This one doesn't birth death. This one births something else. I love this verse, because it's a reversal of what James just talks about in the section above. This sort of picture of temptation, this grotesque kind of Stephen King-like image of desire giving birth to sin which grows up into death. That's, if you think about that, that's really grotesque. Isn't it? But with God, it's reversed. I love this because this is Scott McKnight. He says, quote, human desire, epithumia, leads to sin and death. God's desire, bulatheus, leads to new birth in a community. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that hopeful?
God desired, willed to birth us by the word of truth, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You know, in those days, truth wasn't just like A, B, or C on a scantron. That is true, and these are false. Truth in those days was more personal. And so the word of truth is, of course, Jesus and all of who Jesus is. And it says here that God willed or wanted or even desired to what? To rebirth us. We who what? Walk in sin and death are now given a brand new start, a rebirth, a new beginning, real life. We go from walking death to first fruits of new creation. We, we heard Ingrid read for us about how new creation, how creation right now groans and, and it longs for that future day. It's like creation is under lock and key. And then when Jesus comes, it'll be unleashed with joy. And when Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. And right here, James is reminding you and reminding me that we are the first fruits of that future day. Just like our trees bud, the first fruit. If you have an apple tree in front of your house, you know that first fruit. What is it? It is a sign. It is a picture. It is something you can see, something you can hold that says more is coming. And that is what Jesus calls his church. He's saying more is coming. Jesus was raised from the dead. All who are in Jesus have new birth. And so therefore, you are like chunks of new creation. You're like the first apple off the dying tree that is going to burst forth into more and more and more and more life. That is who you are called. And how did that happen? James says, God wanted it to. He willed it. He willed it. That is grace. That is grace. He has saved you by grace. Don't you dare let people say James is against grace. He just says something profound. We cannot birth ourselves. Everybody knows that. We forget it. And James says we are birthed by God into new life. We, we had no hand in that. No. How could we? God is so gracious. And this is the true God. James, want to make, James wants to make sure we're not deceived about this. So we don't wander from this. So let me just ask you, what is your main, like what could be your main deception about God in this moment of hardship? I would love for you to name that. Or at least try, or at least work on that. A former teacher of mine, my friend Anthony Bradley, he likes to say, suffering trumps theology. Chew on that. What he means is that hardship has a way of overpowering our neat, tidy theological systems. But James says we must not wander from the true God who is generous, unchanging, and gracious. Sometimes I think we view God like the head game maker in Hunger Games. He sort of sits up there, makes an arena, throws deadly obstacles towards you, hoping that you'll die. Or at least fail. James says no. That's the, that's, that's the heartbeat of James in this. When he talks about how, how 
uh, it's our desires that when conceived become sin, which then when grows, which we allow to have free reign, and we stop battling, becomes death. That whole analogy, the pastoral heartbeat behind that, is so that you would not view God as that. Some sort of like malevolent dictator in the sky watching you all down in his arena and throwing like that smoke that makes you pop out in the boils, whatever that stuff is. It's really scary. You seen that movie? That's the worst part. That gas. He's not turning your hardship into the sin traps. That's not God's character. I mean, Paul says he, he gives us ways out graciously. And we see here that he forgives us in our sins when we sin. Now, James is telling us about the true God because he doesn't want us to wander from them in a season like this. I mean, I would just say, like, let's take James's cue and let's pick these three things and hang on to these, especially today. Because if they're having a hard time, I mean, they're having a really hard time in James' church. And if James picks out these sort of Realities or truths about our triune God for them to hang on to, it's a, probably a good idea for us to do the same. And so what are they? I'll just repeat them again. He says, he's a good giver. He's gratuitous. Number two, he doesn't change. And number three, he has desired to rebirth you. He wants you. He wants you in his new creation. And he wants to preview. He wants your neighbors to see a preview of new creation. I mean, when we hold our hardships in this way, what are we doing? We are showing our neighbor that, that there is something coming. New creation. I mean, we're not living for this moment. Are we? There's something coming, and we're showing that. We're actually evidencing by the Holy Spirit that we are in Jesus. And we are therefore new creation. We are, like my friend says, chunks of new creation, floating in this dying and decaying world. What a, what a beautiful image. I love that image. So friends, let me just say, how will you hold your hardship today? With reactivity and blame and self-deception or receptivity and curiosity? Springboards of faith and hope. Enjoy. I want to encourage you to hold these hardships open-handedly, not with a clenched fist. One scholar correctly translates faith in the Gospels as relaxing into God's love. Relaxing into God's love. I would encourage you to relax into the God that James describes for us here, the true God, as opposed to wandering from Him. So relax into His gratuitous grace, please. Please do that. I'm going to try to as well. For every look at the sin passage, would you take 300 looks at the next passage? I think we underline the first passage and then we kind of glaze over the second passage. It talks about how we are new creation. One is an anatomy of sin, the other anatomy of grace. Many commentators talk about how we are what we love. We follow that which we love. We stay with those whom we love. Fall in love with this generous, gracious God. Who will not allow your hardship to have a 
final say. Then I would ask you to relax into the immutability of God, the unchangingness of God. I mean, I don't think it's an accident that James sort of brings up these attributes of God when talking to this church. God doesn't change. He's gracious. He gives good things. I love what Kathy Keller says about God's immutability. I'm just going to quote it in full. And I pray it meets you as it meets me. When we see things slipping out of our grasp, she writes, we need not mourn their loss. Children grow up. They change from darling little babies, her words, to difficult teens and independent adults. Jobs come and go. So do money, fame, looks, health, and every other facet of our reality. She writes, but God can be depended upon to be the same loving Savior today, tomorrow, and into eternity. We can let go of the rest because we will always have Him. Augustine famously said of God, Our hearts are restless until they find what? Their rest in Thee, O Lord. As one writer paraphrased it, and I want to say this quote maybe three times, because I love it. I think it will be helpful to you. Only love of the immutable can yield tranquility. Only love of the immutable can yield tranquility. Only love of the immutable God who does not change, who does not cast a different shadow because he's moving from this to that. No, God doesn't change. And only love of our true God can yield tranquility. So do not be deceived. Do not wander. In this season of hardship, would we move from a sort of hardened certainty to a holy curiosity? God is doing something in my life. I don't really know what it is, but I'm going to trust Him. He's unchanging, and He's good. So instead of blaming Him or sort of turning a blind eye to myself, I'm going to simply hold this hardship knowing that it does not end in death. A surprising joy, even a crown of life. Knowing that He's holding it. So let's pray to Him now. Lord, this is a challenging passage. It's challenging, Lord, because what You're seemingly asking us feels impossible. Lord, would that impossibleness be exactly the pathway to faith for us this morning? That we would depend on You in this and experience surprising joy Surprising hope and surprising faith. Lord, would our love for you, the immutable, yield tranquility in this crazy moment for our lives? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in. 
For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.